How long did it take for you to habituate to the thrill of winning the Nobel Prize and being knighted? <laughs> I remember many, many years ago talking socially to a shrink who said, we call that disease Nobel Prize-itis, right? Mm. Which is that, you know, no one's paying any attention, no one's recognizing your work, you know, and if only you could get the Nobel Prize, everybody would recognize you and those would go away. Right. Well, and he said, the one thing we've learned in my profession is that getting the Nobel Prize does not cure Nobel Prize-itis. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's true. You know, if you're insecure about people not paying any attention to you, you'll be insecure after you win the Nobel Prize. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, where I am back home clean after 10 days on the road with Collective Soul and Sticks. It was a super fun adventure. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Today's episode is an encore conversation with Sir Angus Deaton. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist from Princeton whose research into the relationship between income and happiness was groundbreaking and oft quoted in news and other research. Let me ask you a question. If you make $150,000 a year, are you twice as happy as somebody who makes $75,000 a year? Are you half as happy as somebody who makes $300,000 a year? Well, Sir Angus's research dives into those questions and gives us some structure with which to think about the problem is more always better. I'll talk about Serengus in just a minute. Let me tell you a little bit more about the Styx Collective Soul Experience. It was amazing. I slept on a bus for, I guess, eight of the last 10 nights. Two of those nights we were in hotels. It was a lot of fun. 13 dudes on a bus is quite an experience. And I was wildly impressed with how well everybody got along, their commitment to the mission, their commitment to the tour, their commitment to each other was great. So I want to say thank you. To everybody from the Collective Soul Camp for your hospitality and making me feel like part of the gang. Without Ed Roland, this whole experience never would have happened. I am grateful to him for his artistic generosity, but also to my bunk brothers, Dean Roland, Johnny Rabb, Will Turpin, Jesse Triplett, the greatest crew a band could have, Chaney Brannon, Vince, Tom, Fern, Craig, Bobby, and Tim. You guys... Thanks for tolerating me. Sorry for consuming my disproportionate share of oxygen over the past 10 days. It was a lot of fun. Hope we can do it again sometime. Also, shout out to Charlie Brusco at Red Light Management for making the whole thing happen. And the guys at Six, the whole crew, from George Packer, their tour manager, who was amazing, to all the guys in the band and all their crew, everybody was really nice, and I am enormously grateful. Let's talk about Sir Angus Deaton, shall we? How many times in the same conversation do Styx, Collective Soul, and Sir Angus Deaton come up? I wonder. Maybe I should focus my brand a little bit tighter. I don't know, but all these things are very interesting to me. <laughs> Telling jokes of questionable taste in front of 7,000 people on a Sunday in Oklahoma City, and then riding on a bus with a bunch of rock stars, and then coming home and talking about declining marginal returns of wealth. I don't know. Am I trying to do too much? Is my aim too wide here? Or should I pick one of these things and go as deep as possible? Don't answer that question. I know what I'm doing. This is working. <laughs> All right. Princeton economist and Nobel laureate Sir Angus Deaton co-authored a famous study concluding that well-being peaks at $75,000 a year in income, or put more accurately, as you will hear him say in this interview, past $75,000 a year, there is no additional increase in happiness. Now, some of you, especially those of you living in high cost of living areas like New York City, San Francisco, are like, like hell, I could live on $75,000 a year and be happy. Maybe so, maybe not. But what I think is important here is the proof, the conclusion that once you've got your basics covered, once you have a car that you can rely on, once you know how you're going to pay your rent and feed your kids, and whether that number is $75,000 or $65,000 or $125,000 a year, once you've achieved this level of financial autonomy, you're out of danger. You're out of the existential danger that people who live in financial chaos deal with on a daily basis. I was there a long time ago and not for many years, but I lived it for a while and it sucked, sucked bad. When you don't know how you're going to pay your rent, there's no way to live. And I've said many times on the show, the richest I've ever felt is the day I paid off my student loans. I still believe that. And I believe 
It's highly related to this concept that Sir Angus Deaton talks about. That $75,000 a year in income is a convenient highlight, a convenient quote, but the results of the research are often misconstrued and go much deeper than the headline. And as you'll hear, the first question we wrestle with was, what does it even mean to be happy? And what role does money play in either enabling that or keeping us from it? I'll let Sir Angus Deaton do the talking from here on out, so I'll just tell you a little bit more about him. He is a native of Edinburgh, Scotland. You can still hear a bit of the brogue in the accent. I think when I said bit of a brogue, that might have even been an Irish inflection. But he's a Scotsman. He earned his BA, MA, and PhD at Cambridge. Since 1983, he has been a member of the economics faculty at Princeton University. He has won many awards, most notably the 2015 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his analysis of consumption, poverty, and welfare. In 2016, Deaton joined the Order of the British Empire named Knight Bachelor for his services to research in economics and international affairs, thus the Sir in Sir Angus Deaton. His latest book, which he mentions briefly, came out a year and a half ago, actually. It's called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. It talks about what's happening with mostly white working class in America and what that pretends for our overall economy. We don't spend a whole lot of time talking about that, but it's probably worth you checking out. Please enjoy this conversation with Sir Angus Deaton. So, Sir Angus Deaton, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. I just interviewed a Princeton faculty colleague of yours, Peter Singer. He and you have some disagreements as to the best way to address world poverty, and you are identifying some of the issues, structural issues that prevent conversation among academics. You know, when I started out in economics, I was in Cambridge in England mm-hmm. in the late 60s. Yes. And the philosophers and economists really talked to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just a very, very junior person that no one noticed. And, you know, Amartya Sen was there and Bernard Williams was there. And all of the, you know, they were obviously extremely interested in philosophy. And Amartya had been interested in philosophy since he was an undergraduate, as far as I can see. And there was a lot of discussion about ethical issues, and Rawls's book had just come out at that time, and economists were extremely interested in that. Economists were very interested in how you build ethics into a tax system, mm-hmm. for instance. So Jim Worley's was there then um, doing the work that he eventually got the Nobel Prize for. But for whatever reason, over the last 50 years, mm-hmm. that seems to really fall away. And of course, there are exceptions, but economists are not very interested in the ethical foundations of what they're doing. They don't read philosophy. They don't talk to philosophers. Mm -hmm. They have a sort of very bastard view of utilitarianism or something, which they don't think about very much. And then they think about utility. They think about utility, but, you know, for them, it's just a U. It's a mathematical (laughs) symbol on the right. You know, it's not something you feel. (laughs) Right, right. um, Thing. And so it's manipulated, and, and you would have a very hard time getting a philosophically coherent statement out of most economists. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's left the philosophers who are interested in practical affairs, of which Peter Singer would be a very good example. Mm-hmm. Because they don't talk to economists, they don't understand how the world works very well, I think. And so you really need to bring a knowledge of how the world works with some ethical understanding if you're going to do policy. Yes. And I think both sides are doing that badly uh, because I, I don't think, I mean, you've read the last chapter of The Great Escape, and I'm not sure that those philosophers who are interested in saving the world have much understanding of the political and economic mechanisms that go on in those countries. You know, they have strong ethical preferences for helping people, which is fine. So do I. Sure. But it leads us to very different places. I hope we have time to get back to that. The fundamental objective of this podcast is to explore the relationship between money and happiness. Okay. And you've done some very important work in this field. I'd like to get to that before. And if we have time, sure. we'll come back to those other things. Absolutely. So I'm hoping we can start with a very simple question. Professor Deaton, does money buy happiness? Well, maybe I could start with a joke since you're a comedian, you know, <laughs> which is um, my ex-colleague Danny Kahneman, with whom I did that work, he always said, well, yeah, money buys happiness. The problem is you can't turn happiness into money. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that many people would be do a lot better if they could. So does money buy happiness? Well, not really. You know, you, you presumably um, looked at our paper. Oh, I did. And, <laughs> 
I mean, part of the point of that paper, which was a research agenda to which I'm still committed, is that the word happiness is used in a very loose way. And there's happiness, which is, you know, you're looking at me and you're smiling. You look pretty happy. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty happy having this interview. So we're both feeling good at the moment. Sure. And that's a form of mood or happiness and so on. There's a different sort of happiness which people use the word for all the time, which is how well do you think your life is going, mm -hmm. right? And both of those are really important. I mean, it's nice to feel happy. And, you know, one story that we used to tell that um, separates those two is let's say that you have a favorite uncle who's just died at the age of 98 and who had a very distinguished career and led a very good life. And you've just been at his funeral, mm -hmm. for instance. And if someone says, were you happy today? That's probably not the word you would choose. Right. Um, you would say, I was mourning this man. I was very sad at his departure. I was thinking about all the good times we spent together and how we'll never have those again. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of sadness. There's regret, nostalgia. But happiness is probably not the word you would use. On the other hand, if you said, is your life going well? You'd say, this is the way life is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, these things happen. And everybody has to die. And he could not have died in a better way. So you could say, this is a good life. And, you know, that I think in some ways is a more fundamental question. Does this fictitious uncle of mine have a lot of money and how much of it will I inherit? I don't think that really matters <laughs> in this case. It might. And, and in fact, it might just cloud this. Yes. You know, so that you'd probably be better off in that situation, you know, having pure memories of your uncle that are not contaminated by the um, motive you've just imputed to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you express it in two kind of buckets. You have emotional well-being, which is, and maybe you can offer a little bit about how these data were collected, the different data regarding emotional well-being versus life evaluation. Right. Okay. So the life evaluation, which you could agree is a more fundamental thing. I mean, to me, if I'm an economist and I'm trying to evaluate the state of the world, that's the one I would pay most attention to. I'm not sure that's right, but that's the way I think about it. The question that we worked with is one that was actually invented at Princeton by a psychologist called Cantrell, Harvey Cantrell. Oh, that's where the ladder comes from. That's where the ladder comes from. And it says, you know, imagine a ladder and it has rungs from zero to 10. So there are 11 points on it. And zero is the worst life you could imagine for yourself. And 10 is the best life you right. can imagine for yourself. Where do you put yourself on the ladder? The most important thing about that is that it, the word happiness does not appear anywhere in there. Mm. It's completely devoid of any feeling of how you're doing, you know, how you feel this moment. Right. All right. So Gallup asked that question in their surveys. And so we had a tremendous amount of data on that from the U.S. and from around the world. But Gallup also, and, and Danny really, Danny Kahneman was, you know, worked with Gallup when they were developing these surveys. So they also have the other sort of questions, which are the questions about mood and emotion. And those questions in the Gallup surveys at least take the form, did you feel a lot of X mm -hmm. during the last 24 hours? Right. And X would be happiness, sadness, anger, stress, you know, and they're all different. Yes. And you get different answers. And they're not all perfectly correlated with each other mm -hmm. at all. And so those are clearly important. And I think Danny, when he was doing this work, thought those were the only things that were important. All there is is your feelings now. Mm. And if you could add all those up, you'd tell how your life was going. But I'm not sure he and I certainly don't believe that now. That that's the most important. Well, metric. I'm not sure whether – I think it's very important, and I don't want to take that away. Mm -hmm. But the sense of – you know, I am in the end an economist, yes. and I'm interested in how people's lives are going. And the latter is, to me, a very good question about that. On the other hand, you know, if you ask people, and you've obviously thought about this quite hard, what are the things you do in your life where you express a lot of happiness? And, you know, a lot of that is spending time with friends. Right. It's socializing. It's helping other people. You know, it's all the thing that religious readers talk about a lot of the time. So maybe, you know, the way to get high on the ladder is to have a lot of those other things so that you live your life in a way that you do feel good a lot of the time. 
Well, the Harvard longitudinal study suggests that the number one driver of happiness is relationships. Yeah, is social is being a part of that. But go to the the most widely cited conclusion of this work, which I think is often misunderstood. And the conclusion is that people use for whatever reason they want to cite it that happiness caps out at seventy five thousand dollars a year. Is that what you found actually? Yeah. yeah, but it is happiness and not life evaluation. Meaning that people who had more than $75,000 didn't say they smiled more, laughed more, or were less stressed than people with less than $75,000. That's, That's exactly correct. One way to think about it is the other way is if you have less than $75,000, you can't really undertake a lot of these activities which are productive of socializing. For right. Instance. You know, you can't go out to dinner with your friends, you can't go to the ball game. You know, you feel shamed, perhaps, because someone says, you know, yes. let's go on vacation together or let's have another nice weekend in the city. It's not the nice weekend in the city. It's the being with friends. Yes. Capital One won't let me go to brunch this weekend. So emotional well-being or what you call hedonic well-being, which doesn't mean it's hedonism, means you're feeling emotions, uh, positive emotions. You don't get more past $75,000. You have fewer below $75,000, which means that rich people can be stressed and unhappy and that poor people can sometimes also be happy. Yeah. But you found with life evaluation that there was a significant correlation between income and the number of the rung of the ladder you placed yourself yeah. on. We didn't have Bill Gates or Elon Musk or <laughs> any of your ex-colleagues from Facebook right. in our sample. Yes. So, you know, we don't really know what happens way, way up there. But in the data that we had, which had quite a lot of people reporting pretty high income, mm -hmm. we didn't see any turnaround in that. So it suggests that this, you know, to me, quite acceptable paradox that – you know, your your evaluation of life. I mean, it might be to some extent circular. We're all taught to evaluate our lives by what salaries we have. Yes. So when you say which point of the ladder on, the first thing you think about is what's my salary, mm. you know. Whereas the happiness, in which case, if you really thought that, then this is a bit circular. Right. Right. Whereas for the happiness or – and you don't put it the other way. It's if you have less than that, if you're really poor, money gets in the way – of your friendships and your relationships and the things that actually are going to make your life good. I kind of always interpreted it. Now, I, there were periods in my life where I get paid and have $14 left until my next paycheck, and that left little money to fund socializing, dating, discretionary purchases of any kind. Right. I woke up and I was thinking about money within 20 minutes of waking up. Yep. I was worried about how I was going to pay my credit card bill. So this makes a ton of sense to me. And it always felt to me like an additional $10,000 was relieved an enormous amount of pain at that point. Yep. Whereas somebody who's making $100,000 makes an additional $10,000. It's nice, but it doesn't relieve pain. It provides vitamins to their life. That's exactly right. I think so. I mean, I also grew up pretty poor. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, my father kept a book in which every penny he spent, literally, you know, in Britain, you had to spend a penny to go to the bathroom. And he, if <laughs> well, you were, uh, you're going to make the most of that pence, right? And he would write that down in you know, his book. And he'd grown up in the Depression in a coal mining town in Yorkshire. And you know he struggled for money all his life. And there's this sort of curse there which you do pass on to your children, which is that they worried about money all the time. You know, They want you to worry about money yes, all the time. Yes. And not frivolously... Spent, I mean, I give another example of something that made me very happy and which I was deprived of as a child and made me incredibly angry and actually had nothing to do with relationships. It was for two shillings and sixpence, which was, um, you know, what, an eighth of a pound, right, um, which was not very much money even then. I could buy a fishing license that would enable me unlimited access to fish for trout on mm. the nearby River Tweed. Mm. And my father said, well, this year we're having a hard time, son. I can't give you that. And I was enormously resentful over that because it was like withholding a big chunk of happiness and contentment and meaning in my life over what seemed like a very small sum of money. So I don't think it's just relationship. 
would you catch and release those trout or did you take them home and eat them? Yeah. My mother was sending me out for food. Is well, what that's, she was doing. That seems like a very good investment of an eighth of a, of a pound, right? Uh, right. Well, maybe I didn't catch enough. <laughs> like, or maybe it was just what in economics we call a liquidity crisis. Yes. <laughs> the, the, he didn't have the money to give me the two, the, what we call a half crown um, at, at that point. But I just remember the resentment to this day. Yes. But it's like the sort of things we're talking about. You you know, yes. someone wants me to go and have dinner with them, and I can't take them a bottle of wine, or I can't take them a six-pack of beer or something, you know, and I feel ashamed. As you built your own solvency as a young adult, did you find yourself, does the data resonate with your life experience? It's taken a long time, and I think some of that is that, you know, I stopped worrying much too late. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so Are you saying I can stop worrying? I'm 50. Is it time for me to stop worrying? Well, it probably is. I, you know, my son, who is works for D. Shaw, the hedge fund, mm-hmm. probably people you know, lives what seems to me a, a, a wonderful life. Yes. And, but when he was a student here at Princeton, he had no money. And he would somehow smuggle himself into the Metropolitan Opera House or things like that. So he seemed to be pretty equitably happy. Mm-hmm. And he does spend a lot of money. And, but he seems to get enjoyment out of it. Yeah. And that's much harder for me given the way I grew up. So I guess what I'm saying is the the, the penumbra, the shadow of my father and his worry lay over me for much too long. Right. And it's really for me only in the last few – I mean, one of the things that does happen is when you win the Nobel Prize, it turns out to be pretty stupid to stop work, to go on worrying about money before right. that point. So one of the themes that keeps coming up in this is the more you read about money and happiness, you come back to the hedonic treadmill and our tendency as human beings, our capability as human beings to survive disaster, but also to not feel joy around positive events for very long. So how long did it take for you to habituate to the thrill of winning the Nobel Prize and being knighted? Well, we sort of switched subject. You know, we're not talking about money anymore. Right. I mean, the Nobel Prize comes with money, but I'll tell you a story here about that too. I, this is a very sad story. Yes. So a very, very distinguished economist at Harvard, uh, Marty Weitzman, mm-hmm. died 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. And according to all the accounts, he killed himself. And according to the New York Times, which has turned into sort of a tabloid on a lot of these issues, <laughs> that one of the reasons he killed himself is because he was passed over for the Nobel Prize. Oh, wow. Which um, Bill Nordhaus got last year for his work on climate. Mm-hmm. And there's no enmity at all between these two guys. They've worked together. They respect each other enormously. And indeed, Bill Nordhaus has said since he got the prize that when he got the prize, he expected to get it with Marty Weitzman Mm -hmm. because Marty had done a different sort of work from what he'd done, but equally important. It's had a huge effect on people's thinking and on policy and so on. So (laughs) I remember many, many years ago talking um, socially to a shrink who said, we call that disease Nobel Prize-itis, right? Mm. Which is that, you know, no one's paying any attention, no one's recognizing your work, you know, and if only you can get the Nobel Prize, everybody would recognize you and those would go away. Right. Well, and he said, the one thing we've learned in my profession is that getting the Nobel Prize does not cure Nobel Prize-itis. Right. (laughs) You know, and it's true. You know, if you're insecure about people not paying any attention to you, you'll be insecure after you won the Nobel Prize just right. as much as before. So it's true. I mean, I knew that would happen from day one. On the other hand, it's a wonderful thing for those three months or whatever it is. Right. Um, and, you know, everybody's incredibly nice to you. <laughs> one of the things Random that podcasters de- find you on the internet. The <laughs> random podcasters find you on the internet. But also one of the things about it that Danny said, and it's really true, is it makes other people incredibly happy, right? For you. For you. Mm-hmm. No, but it, it gives them pleasure. So it's yes. sort of like a happiness machine. Uh. I remember the day after I got it, I actually had dinner with Peter Singer and some friends, mm-hmm. and I got an Uber back, right? And I thought, I'll just tell the Uber driver, you know, I won the Nobel Prize today. And the guy became ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty cool thing to tell somebody. <laughs> well, I thought, why not? Try it. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say, what? You know, what the hell is that sort of yeah. idea? But it wasn't like that at all. It just made him laugh. He was delighted. And he's told 100 people that and story. And he probably told 100 people that story. So that's an unexpected part. Yeah. That it's a really a pleasure machine. And there are other nice parts about it, like 
the the weekend Stockholm mm. is a pretty special yeah. set of events. And they've been doing it for a long time. They sort of know how to make it work. Yeah. But you get to take 13 people with you. I Do don't you know really? where the 13 comes from. Yeah. Wow. They don't pay for them, but mm -hmm. you, you can get 13 people and they're invited to the ceremony and the, the banquet and all the events. And for us, they were mostly, they were about equally split between my family mm -hmm. and my co authors. Did you take the dean? No, <laughs> not take the dean. But the thing about it that I totally unexpected was it was like a family holiday, mm. just the best family holiday you can ever imagine. So there was just a lot of things in it, which are things like we're talking about, Yes, where there's a lot of happiness around you and other people as well. Happiness mm -hmm. is sort of infectious that way. And you get to spend time with your kids, my kids, my grandkids. I was also fortunate I was the only Nobel laureate in my year who had kids in the attractive TV amenable sort of age group. Right. And so they became stars in their own right. And people would come up to me in the street and say, I love your Bern Bern, which is <laughs> Swedish for grandchildren. That's great. Um, so, no, that was very happiness-producing things. But the thing about the Nobel Prize is it changes your life. It's really impossible to compare before and afterwards. Well, I was speaking to this financial psychologist a few weeks ago, and he works with very high net worth individuals and some of the issues that they have. And he says, one of the things about making a lot of money is that before you have a lot of money, you can comfort yourself by saying, if I had a lot of money, then I would be happy. Right. And that turns out not to be the case right. most, much of the time. So it's not necessarily about habituation. It's about sort of the realization that, you know, your problems stay with you. Well, whether... this is the problem of setting false goals, right? You yes. Know, you, you think you'll be happy if this happens. And, you know, you don't have to belong to much of a church to be told that that's not going to work for you. That's right. Um, so that that is, a, you know, human wisdom that's been accrued for a long time, and you would have thought people might have learned it by now. It's funny how you got to figure it out on your own. Uh, we can come back to some of these issues, but we did change the subject. I want to talk about some of the conclusions your study, this study, came up with. For example, life, let's see, the presence of children at home is associated with significant increases in stress, sadness, and worry. And but here, also with some positive things, too. Yeah. Was, it, was it positively correlated with life evaluation? I don't remember. I don't think that was in the study with Kahneman, but it was another work we did since. Okay. I mean, the problem with... All of that literature is that, you know, people choose to have kids, right? Yes. So, if you wanted to have kids and you couldn't have kids, that would make you pretty unhappy. Yes. Right? If <laughs> you didn't want kids, you know, remember the days when you used to get your girlfriend pregnant or it was a concern? <laughs> I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about, sir. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I tried not to right but I mean that was time. something that could make you seriously very, unhappy very stressed right. yes and you know if you ask people how do you solve this they say well we should allocate children randomly to people well if I woke up with a random child on my pillow tomorrow morning <laughs> I don't know what that would do to me but that's not what we're talking about here so I think that problem is sort of unresolvable mm. in some sense you know what do you expect i mean it, it's like i was going to say it's like getting a nobel prize but it's not it's like um you know your life is going to be changed it's it's something that you really want to do in some ways it's mm -hmm. going to bring you a lot of stress and anxiety and you know a lot of the things we couldn't look at in that study is what a grandchildren do to you for instance what does it feel like you know when you're 60 and you have kids who've been successful. Mm. Or in the book that Anne and I have just written, what happens to you if you're 60 and your kids are on drugs? Right. Or, um, you know, are threatening to commit suicide. And, and we read and see people like that all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the way. So children, what was it Bacon said, I think, that he who is a wife and children has given hostages to fortune? What does he mean by that? It just means you put yourself enormously at risk. Right. And those hostages you know, can come and bite you or they can bring you great joy. Mm -hmm. But you've really, it's like, you know, if you're in finance, it's like building a very risky portfolio. It might pay off and it might not, but you've certainly opened yourself up to a lot of emotional distress as well as a lot of happiness. Yes. Ah, interesting. But I just think that in the techniques we use of trying to look at these data, that question is not addressable in a way that... um you know, is satisfying. 
uh, or should be paid any attention to, which doesn't talk in the newspapers every time you write a paper about children and happiness. It always gets published. <laughs> that does. Well, there's, some, there's lots of really interesting nuggets. So most people, about 85%, were happy and satisfied. Yep. 24% reported sadness and worry. Stress was reported by 39%. The U.S. ranked ninth country in life satisfaction behind Scandinavians, Canada, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and, and New Zealand. Can we agree that the Nordics cheat on these life evaluation scores. I mean, there's something going on there. It's collusion. It's got to be collusion. Well, I, I would hate to accuse the Swedes who've been so nice to me <laughs> <laughs> of any sort of collusion of that sort at all. But I mean, there there is a serious issue, which is that there. I think most of us do believe that our country specific things in there that Latinos and Latinas. Mm -hmm. tend to be more positive. Mm. The Chinese people in the Far East tend to respond pretty negatively on these scales compared with what they have. And that might be to do with the fact that, you know, in the culture, you're just not supposed to say, you know, I grew up in Scotland. Where yes. is, <laughs> Where's your accent? Where did well, it go? Well, that's a long story. A few but, decades uh, in New Jersey. A few decades in New Jersey. You know, the, the most positive thing you ever say in Scotland is I mustn't grumble. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know? And depression is something only happens to the weather, not right. to people. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I, the, the, there clearly are national traits about the way people either feel or respond to those questions. The real question is about translating the words, too. Right. You, well, you say in your book, The Great Escape, in the U.S., being happy is a civic responsibility. Right. Well, it's in the Declaration of Independence, right? The U.S. scored very high in worry at 89th, sadness 69th, and 75th in anger. Are we just too stressed out? I mean, what's going on in the U.S., do you think? I think what's happening in the U.S. is not good. And we could get, you know, I've just written a book about unhappiness yes. in the U.S., uh, and I think, you know, there are really seriously bad things happening, mm -hmm. especially to people who don't have a college degree, who've been sort of left out of all the goodies somehow. Speaking of which, you said college graduates have a higher life evaluation, but report more stress than non-college grads. But especially with your recent work, you're seeing that white middle-aged white Americans without a high school diploma are dying at a faster rate than has happened in decades. I'm not sure than decades, but... The mortality rates have been decades is hard because, you know, things were improving for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so exactly where the turning point is. So it's true that all-cause mortality has risen or been flat for about the last 19 years. That's mm -hmm. right. So it's, that's about right. Yeah. Uh, you just have to be careful because people like to say, you know— the right on this says, well, things are way better than they were in 1980, for instance. Well, that's true. On average. Well, yeah, but you get a, you know, it goes down and comes up. Mm -hmm. But one thing you've talked about stress quite a lot, which I think is quite important, is um, one paper that I did with Arthur Stone and various other colleagues was looking at the age patterns mm -hmm. and those things. So that one thing that's really interesting is stress and anger after about middle age drop like a stone right you know why do you think that is well i don't know and you yourself uh, have just said you've stopped learned to stop worrying about money. yeah but i'm 74 years old or 73 years so old. you're so dragging up the numbers so you're i might be dragging out the numbers but i think that's that seems to be pretty universal there's a woman called laura karstensen who's a professor at stanford mm -hmm. who has a, what she calls a socio-emotional model of adaptivity and the point is that you get wiser as you get older. Mm. You stop going on blind dates, for goodness right. sake. You know, that's one examples you get. I mean, a blind date is like giving hostage to fortune, right? It's yes. probably going to be totally miserable, yes. but you still have to do it anyway. Well, when you get to be 70 years old or 60 years old or 55 years old, you stop trying to make friends with people who are going to be bad for you, and you rely more on the people, you know. So I think there is a lot of – call it wisdom, if you like. I mm -hmm. think there is a growth in wisdom and you learn not to do things that are going to make you really unhappy. There are other things, too. I mean, when you're in your 50s, you have kids to worry about, you have parents to worry about, mm -hmm. yes. and it's very easy for people in that age to feel completely overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, careers put a lot of stress on people at that age. Yes. And, um, you know, if you've got children who are not doing very well or whose future is very uncertain. I think probably the major source of unhappiness among the people we know who are like us are, are the kids are not settled. Mm -hmm. 
how does your your most recent work with your wife around mortality and mor- morbidity is there any connection between the happiness study and that or which of those two studies what what pieces of are consistent between yeah, those two I'm, things yeah i'm i'm not sure um and also yeah, just to correct the record on my tape um, she's the senior co-author on this work. I'm sorry. And, um, you know, she's a professor here at Princeton. Yeah, no, I know. This so, Professor Ann Case. Professor Ann Case, yes. yeah. And so you, she you, doesn't react well to Angus Deaton and his wife. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. That's I, all right. I, I, I apologize, No, professor it's okay. Case. It's just if we could correct that on the tape. Absolutely. Be great. But um, some of it is, I mean, one of the things we've struggled with is we think of a lot of these deaths as broad form suicides mm-hmm. in some sense, you know, that you either take your own life because your life is completely disintegrated and it's mm-hmm. not worth living anymore, or your life is so miserable you sink a quart of bourbon when you come home from work every day, mm-hmm. or, you know, you're susceptible. Um, you know, if you're in pain, um, physical pain, or even social pain, you know, because you've lost friends or because the work environment you used to work in is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. The brain uses opioids to try to make you feel better. The pain circuits are based around opioids. And so external opioids can really make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, you help the brain along restore these things. But obviously, if things are going really badly, there's potential for addiction and all those sort of things. One of the things, when Anne and I started working on this topic we came into it through the happiness side. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions that had been in the back of my mind for years, no one could ever answer, or people answered it, but they gave me contradictory answers, was are places where people are very happy, places where people are less likely to kill themselves? And one of the senior scholars in this field said yes, and the other one said no. (laughs) And it turns out the data are not that predictive. So, for instance, in the U.S., there's this huge suicide belt up the Rocky Mountains. Mm. So, the county we spend our time in in the summer is Madison County, Wisconsin, um, which is around Ennis. The suicide right there is— Wisconsin. No, Madison County, sorry, Madison County, Montana. Montana, right, okay. And we are now in Mercer County, New Jersey. Okay. (laughs) And the suicide rate in Madison County, Montana is five times the suicide rate in um, Mercer County— New Jersey. Overall. Overall. Mm-hmm. How do you mean overall? Well, as opposed to among uh, white no, men in their 40s. Just the, the okay. suicide rate there. And I think that's over the last decade. There are not enough suicides year by year in a county. That's right. Fine. And yet, I don't know about Madison County. It's too small to have the data on it. But happiness is very, these life satisfaction numbers are very good mm-hmm. all the way up the Rocky Mountains. So people say they're doing really well and they kill themselves. Some of that happens across European countries, too. The Scandinavian countries used to have pretty high suicide rates. They're not so high anymore. And they were always way up on this happiness scale. So we started out thinking, well, what is the link between happiness and suicide? And it turns out there isn't much of one. Mm. And if you look very hard, you can find things. But So this epidemic of death does not seem to be particularly... You, you don't see... So it, you know, unhappiness going up in the same way. So there's no correlation between either life evaluation or emotional well-being. Well, emotional well-being, physical pain is very strongly linked to suicide. Mm. So, um, and yet, the and the things that we've been talking about that predict happiness, like social isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the numbers are, but I think there's about 2,000 people per square mile in Mercer County, mm-hmm. and there's like two. <laughs> Madison County, right. because they're mostly pine trees and rocks. Right? Sure, you know yeah. there's no people there. So, and a lot of the suicide literature suggests that's a real risk factor because you don't have people to turn to. You're out mm-hmm. on the range by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we don't know. Um, and yet, there are pieces in the book we talk about that. For instance, um, one of the things that's very interesting is if you look at stress and pain and the latter. And the other measures, blacks are now doing better than whites, Mm. conditional on education. Mm -hmm. Um, So blacks tend not to get a college degree, or at least a much lower fraction of them get college degrees than whites do. Mm -hmm. But once you look at college grads and people without a college degree, blacks tend to do better on all those measures now than whites did. 
which I'm not sure what it tells you. You know, mm. I, I'm a very skeptical. In, in Scotland, we're taught to be very skeptical. <laughs> God bless you. God bless us. So, you know, people used to make all these extravagant claims about these happiness things that, you know, this was all you should ever look at. And if you could measure how happy people were, you could do public policy and you didn't need to know anything else. Mm-hmm. And so I came into this literature as sort of a skeptic. And I've come away more positively mm. impressed than I was before, partly because of the things we've been talking about, a lot of which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, economists tend to be very narrow, and if these things pick up the amount of time you spend with friends or these things, that's a really good thing because we're taking a broader view of the world. So as the economy changes and manufacturing jobs go away, the middle class goes away, does that accelerate social isolation and the things that lead us to our own destruction? Well, I don't think it's doing so badly for the people who went to college. Right. You know, who've adapted to this economy Mm -hmm. pretty well and, you know, have found ways of getting the things they want. I think for the people, the more working class people, which are, you know, it's 40% of whites mm-hmm. in working age, you know, do not have a BA. So, and, you know, sorry, it's 40% of the U.S. population are whites without a BA. Okay. So it's a much larger number than that. Right. And a lot of the life that was there is not there anymore. So, you know, they used to write about the blue collar aristocrats. Mm. You know, people who worked for Bethlehem Steel. Right. And those jobs were not great jobs. They were often on an assembly line and the work was dangerous and so on. But you had a boat and a cabin on the weekend. Well, some of them did that. But even in coal miners where they didn't have a boat and a cabin, they had a social life around Mm -hmm. there. I mean, I remember where my father grew up in Yorkshire. It was pretty awful social life. There was a lot of violence against women. There was a lot of drinking. Mm -hmm. But there were also brass bands and marching bands. And there was a culture there. And I think those cultures have widely fallen apart. Mm. And as manufacturing jobs are replaced by service jobs, there's not much culture around working in an Amazon warehouse. Right. That's a very Freudian slip. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're actually not even warehouses. They're fulfillment centers. Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) Ironically named. While the fulfillment is for the customer. (laughs) Not for the the human being that works. Yeah, exactly. So, and yet some of those service jobs are not like that. They're, you know, you have quite a lot of autonomy. A truck driver is not such a bad job. I've never been a truck driver. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of what people call wealth jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a private chef for someone. Yes. Um, you know, you're a dog walker. You're mm-hmm. a fitness trainer. The world seems to have been taken over by fitness trainers. Yes. And those seem to me, you know, not bad jobs. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, you have a lot of personal contact with people. A lot of it's quite pleasant. I think working at McDonald's or working in a call center or driving for Uber. Uber is this sort of mixed thing. I think some of it could be good and some of it could be bad. So I think the nature of work is changing in very unpredictable and difficult ways for people who don't have a BA. We started the conversation about where economics and philosophy kind of meet. So when it comes to policy that are meant to address some of these social ills, there's been a lot of discussion around universal basic income one of the cons would seem to be that you could just stay home and get a check and you don't have to socialize. You don't have to go out to work. You don't have to have something to work at and find fulfillment in. How do you feel about it? Well, uh, I think you want to worry about who's paying for those checks. <laughs> That's, oh, well, well, forget about it. Somebody's going to come up with the money, surely. I mean, we always find it, don't we? Well, I'm not sure we do. There's, you know, Robert Frank, who writes about behavioral economics. Yes. Um, has a wonderful piece that I think Lane Kenworthy, who's at UCSD, had quoted mm-hmm. in his book. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, here, he, he, take this universal basic income, right? And however much it is, you get $10,000 a year mm-hmm. or something, or 20000 in some of them. And he said, imagine a bunch of um, ex-hippies, you know, who decide to set up a commune in California mm-hmm. somewhere. And they pull... You know, they get 10 of them together, plus their kids and so on. And this is extended to everybody. So they've got a collective income for their uh, commune, commune, whatever it is, of 120 grand a year or something. And, you know, if they grow a little marijuana on the side Mm -hmm. and um, maybe have some fruit trees, 
then they can sit around reading poetry to <laughs> to each other and smoking weed and having a wonderful time. Sorry, uh, where is this farm again? I this need farm to- <laughs> is, yeah, where are we? How do I get there? It's in euphoric state, as someone once called it. <laughs> <laughs> and Robert Frank says, well, imagine a dentist in Minneapolis right, mm-hmm. who's got varicose veins and who gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning and drives through the snow for an hour and a half to treat these patients, most of whom are trying to bilk him, who have bad breath mm-hmm. and will reluctant to pay their bills. And he goes home and on the television, he sees this commune in euphoric state in which these people are having a wonderful time being paid for by his taxes. Yes, of right? course. It ain't going to happen, you know? <laughs> it just isn't. And, you know, and we know this because in the Nixon administration, when Milton Friedman and people had pressed this idea of a negative income tax, mm-hmm. they did all these negative income tax experiments in the U.S. in the 60s to try and find out what would happen. And when the results of that came in and went to Washington, even Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was pushing this, um, just ran for the cover, yeah. right? Because it showed that if you pay people a lot of money, they won't work. Yes. Right? And that's a good thing. I'm all for it, you know, that it would be wonderful. But you want to buy people free leisure before they've got health care mm-hmm. or before they get to go to school mm-hmm. or something? It just doesn't seem to me very high on their priority. And given that people don't like paying taxes, you know, let's try to give people universal health care right. before we start worrying about universal basic income. Yeah. We mentioned before we started talking some of the differences in your opinions about how to alleviate global poverty and you come from the standpoint that global aid is not helpful and if i'm if i'm paraphrasing you incorrectly please correct me what should we do to help and i know you're deeply committed to alleviating global poverty so how should we how should we go about it well you know the one thing is i, I like to quote my friend bill easterly who whenever he's asked that question he says who put us in charge <laughs> You know, why do we have this responsibility? He wrote The White Man's Burden, yes. is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a very good question, actually, because, you know, you could have an ethical responsibility and believe you should do everything you can to make things better for people who are in real misery. But putting us in charge <laughs> is a whole different kettle of fish, and, it, uh, you know, it violates, it may violate human freedom, Someone sent me an article today from The Guardian in London where Bill Gates has given Modi a huge prize mm. for sanitation project, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, the fact that he's locking up his people and depriving the Assamese who came from Bangladesh as citizens and is trying to take over Kashmir, which is a majority mm-hmm. Muslim state, is somehow they don't care about. So one of my criticisms of the aid industry is that it's not broad enough I mean, it's trying to have clean toilet facilities for people and not worrying if their um, leaders are putting them in jail or persecuting them because they have this very narrow vision of what they should really be doing. So we should be giving aid to only states that have some human rights record, some minimum level of human rights. Well, then you get what I talk about in The, in the Great Escape, which is this paradox that Peter Bauer first put forward which is the states that you would like to give aid to where it's not going to do any harm are the ones that don't need it. Right. And the ones where it's going to do a lot of harm. And it's these ones in between, of which there seems to be an increasingly large number. I mean, Kagame in Rwanda mm. is another example, or Modi in India, mm-hmm. of oppressive authoritarian states, which actually can use the money because they're pretty well organized. Right. But nevertheless... I got into terrible trouble once for saying that Kagami was basically farming his people because, you know, he can say, you know, I'll let the aid agencies look after them right. and you'll get all this goodness that, you know, people don't get diarrheal disease anymore. And in the same time, I become a darling of the aid industry and you don't go after me when I, you know, punish my opponents and lock them up. Mm. And it's partly that, you know, the the aid people are not really taking things into account like freedom and democracy and the right to self-determination and so on, which are really incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So there are things that you can do, which is what I argue in The Great Escape, that if you can do things not in those countries but for those countries, which is like giving them better trading opportunities, mm-hmm. for instance, not levying protective talents against them, 
also immigration, which we're going in the wrong direction on as far as that is concerned. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what I think about immigration, but it's clear that, you know, immigrants, the remittances that immigrants send home are multiples of foreign aid, mm -hmm. and it's sort of under the people's own control, and a lot of the things I worry about are just not there. So, you know, but the, my, my problem is just that, you know, you have to think through the consequences of these things and much more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, There's unintended consequences. A lot of unintended consequences. And, you know, providing schools for people stops people monitoring the schools and the schools belonging to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are really hard questions because people are suffering. Where do you give your charitable money? I worry about that a lot. Um, and over the years, I've oscillated. I mean, I used to give it to MSF. I like MSF. What is MSF? I'm sorry. Um, Médecins Sans Frontières. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, right, yeah. And because they are alive to these ethical problems in a lot of other aid agencies or mm -hmm. not. And so they're the first to leave when they believe they've been morally compromised. Right. And I like that. But I tend to give more to places around here because I feel that, you know, I can see what it's doing. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, a lot of the problem with aid is that the people who are giving the money are completely disconnected from mm. the people who are receiving it. Right. So there's no real accountability. Whereas if I give money here and it causes something bad to happen, I and other people around here will be held accountable for that. And you made an argument recently that the poorest in the United States are actually on a price-adjusted basis as poor as almost anybody in the world. Right. I got a lot of shit for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> if you read that article, which was an op-ed in the New York Times, it's very careful in what it says. Right. And So I, please correct what I, my summary No, no, it. no. I mean, that was, of course, the impression <laughs> that I was wanting to leave. Yes. And it was partly there, these wonderful books by my colleagues here, Kathy Eden, who'd written this book on living in America on $2 a day, mm -hmm. and also by Matt Desmond, who got a Pulitzer Prize for his PhD thesis on wow. homelessness in Milwaukee. And, you know, the ethnographers have left very little doubt that if you go live with those people, the misery there is extraordinary. Mm. So I was very convinced by that. And then... You know, because the UN has now decided that the new sustainable development goals, which replace the Millennium Development Goals, should apply to the whole world, mm -hmm. then you can actually go to the World Bank website and look up how many poor people there are in every country in the world, including the rich countries. Mm -hmm. And you get these numbers that the New York Times put in that nice chart for me, showing that there are like 5 million people here. Now, the people on the right, of course, think that there is no poverty in, in America. <laughs> And, you know, so there's a lot of questions about these data. Yeah. And people are arguing this, which I've not really participated in, and I'm sure they have some truth on their side, is they say we know from the administrative records how much was paid out, mm -hmm. and it's not really showing up in these surveys. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of money out there. Of course, that doesn't tell you where it went or who right. took it or something. I have no doubt that there's a lot of misery here. And I think if you're living in the Mississippi Delta, you know, the poorest people along the Mississippi Delta, as well as uh, some really bad urban places, I would stick with my current view that those people are as poor as anyone on earth. But, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a much broader, you know, these are people who are selling their children's social security numbers to other people mm. and just awful things going on. And I think in a lot of, you know, local places, poor people are really badly harassed. Mm -hmm. The justice system turns against them. They, um, they're no longer um, giving clean water. There's a scandal in Flint and so on. A lot of places don't have proper sewage, so the stuff that should be piped away is in people's gardens and mm -hmm. things. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are things that you really only associate with some of the poorest countries in the world. And the UN did a report on that, too, which I got blamed for some reason. They, <laughs> it's your fault. It was my fault, yeah. Um, so I do think that, there are, but that's different from the book that Anne and I have written, which yes. is more about you know this white working class. Right, these much better off, mm -hmm. and the, the deaths are not happening among blacks, or they're not until very recently. Mm -hmm. And um, what seems to have happened very recently is that fentanyl has gotten into the yes. drug supply and, mm -hmm. uh, with terrible consequences. You said you were worried about our country 
this country, the United States. What are you most worried about, and what do you hope is fixed by the time your grandchildren are, are adults? Yeah, uh, my grandchildren are closer to adults. Well, let's anyway. say by the time they have kids, or <laughs> they have if their kids, kids have kids, something. in a generation, let's say. I, I find a lot of these problems quite intractable. Um, for the reasons I give in The Great Escape, I'm very optimistic in the long run, because I think people want things to be better, mm-hmm. and will somehow find ways. And that's been true over the last 250 years. Um, but of course, it's not continuous progress. You know, some of the worst things that have happened in human ha- history happened in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we don't have to make a list of what they are. I'm very worried by this educational division, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, too, like in Britain, which is mm-hmm. in complete chaos. <laughs> Um, over somewhat similar issues in that, you know, you've got a cosmopolitan elite who's doing very well, thank you very much, and who think they understand what's good for everybody else. And then the people who are not so well educated who very much resent that. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, Trump and Boris Johnson are not the same person by any manner of means, but there are certainly similarities. And the British political system seems to be responding somewhat better right now than the American one is in that, you know, standards of decency were sort of upheld. Mm -hmm. People saying you really can't do that. Right. And the courts to some extent supporting that and people abandoning him, which has not happened here at all. So I think there's much greater risk of long-term damage to institutions here than there has been in Britain. But that doesn't mean it's going to get resolved. But this this sort of twilight of the elites, I forgot who wrote that book, an excellent journalist, you know, I think it's, it's a real problem. We mm. instituted a meritocracy and it doesn't work. Right, right. Well, how do we end on an upbeat note? <laughs> I don't know. We Let's talk about your Nobel Prize again. How, where, I, where, where should I eat in Stockholm? <laughs> where should you eat in Stockholm? Um, I don't know. But, I mean, one of the things, just come back to happiness a bit. Yes. It's clear that, you know, there's a positive thing about you don't need a lot of money to live a really good life. Yes. Right? And so that many people who don't have very much through their friends or through their religion or through the things they do can find great fulfillment in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways out that's going to happen in America is that we're not going to see everything in terms of educational success or money-making and we're going to valorize lots of other ways of having a really good life. Mm-hmm. And I think that would make for a better world and one in which I'd be very happy to see my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, who I doubt I'll ever see. <laughs> uh, it's this curse, you know. We, I, I had my kids when I was in my early 20s. Yeah. You know, so I could expect it to be a granddad by the time I was 45 or 50, right? But, of course, everybody stopped breeding. <laughs> That's right. We're in their 40. We're following the European pattern here. Yes. So My, my children weren't born until I was 40. So. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So you're like my kids. Yeah. They're, you know, they say, well, we better get on with it now, otherwise it ain't going to yeah. happen. Right. So then they do when they're 40. So if my grandchildren have it when they're 40, you know, I'll be 105. But yes. I'm a great-grandchildren. So that particular joy is not likely to be vouchsafed to me. Well, here's but, hoping you meet one of them. I hope so. Professor Deaton, do you have a website where our listeners can find out more or find your books? The books you can find in Amazon mm-hmm. or anywhere else. Yeah. Googling Angus Deaton will take you to me. All right. Yeah. And your book with Professor Ann Case comes out when? March the 17th. March Patrick's 17th. Day. All right. Yeah. And the, the title is? It's called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. So it's the sort of things we're talking about. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's thank been a you. pleasure it's been to talk to you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. I am a big fan of Sir Angus Deaton. It's interesting that my journey into the exploration of money and happiness has led me to become fanboys of people like Nobel Prize winning economists and other academics whose work uncovers the things that we can feel in ourselves, but it puts data behind the tricks that money plays in our mind or the way that we trick ourselves into thinking something that the data doesn't actually bear out. Thanks to Sir Angus Deaton all those years ago, all those almost two years ago, for talking to me. Let's see. Let's talk about takeaways. Number one, work for things that make you most happy. You're probably going to be able to scrap your way to a living. If you've done your work in school, you'll be able to scrap your way to a living that will provide you sufficient amounts of money to pay your rent and feed your children. The question is, is beyond that, 
base level of financial autonomy, what is it that will provide you the opportunity to live your most authentic life, make you happiest, give your life the most meaning? Yes, you heard him distinguish between the two different kinds of happiness, happiness and the feeling that your life has meaning and money does contribute to that one. I believe what he said that many people answer that the way they're supposed to be answering it. Well, I'm doing quite well, so obviously my life must mean something. I think it's more than that. I think it's important for us to find something that is an expression of who we are and isn't related to the money. Ironically, if you do that thing that expresses who you are and you do it quite well, you might end up making a lot of money doing it. Number two, winning the Nobel Prize does not cure Nobel Prize-itis. I think there's this tendency to think, and we've talked about this before in many ways, there's a tendency to think if we get that thing that affirms us on some level that we believe we lack, whether it's a lot of money or the love of someone attractive or six-pack abs or the Nobel Prize or the headlining spot at a certain comedy club, that we're going to feel fulfilled, we're going to feel appreciated, but that doesn't happen. Our desires just continue to expand as the horizon of our life moves further away from us or stays, more accurately, stays the same distance, just always just outside of our reach. That's kind of the definition of horizon, and it doesn't stop once you accomplish a thing like winning the Nobel Prize. Lastly, it is possible to worry about money too much. Now, I hesitated to put this one in here because there's a chance that my wife would be listening all the way in and that admitting this would mean I lose a little bit of the moral high ground in our family budget discussions. But I think what he said about the penumbra, the shadow of his father, the poverty in which he grew up, remaining a fear that someone as accomplished as Sir Angus had in his life years after he crossed the threshold by some margin, the threshold to financial autonomy and self-determination, that he still allowed those fears of his childhood, the deprivation of that fishing license to influence the way he thought about money in his own life. And for the very small percentage of us in the world, but probably rather large percentage of listeners here, there's a good chance a lot of us worry about money too much. I don't mean that we should be disrespectful to the money we've earned, but maybe we should give away more of it. Maybe we should take a chance on a trip that seems extravagant, but is in actuality a once in a lifetime type of opportunity and, you know, as we discussed in several other episodes, including the one with Bill Perkins, the Die With Zero author, once you're too old to take that hiking trip to Tuscany or to the Alps or wherever, what good is the money that was going to pay for that anyway? You know, so don't keep it all locked up for a rainy day. Spend your money while you're healthy enough to enjoy it. Give it away to causes while you're still able to see the good that it will do in the world. I think that's what Sir Angus might mean by that. Loved that I got the opportunity to talk with him. Next week, Pete Davis, he is the author of a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. His Harvard Law School graduation speech has been viewed like 35 million times on the web, and this book grows out of that inspiring speech. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so see you back here next week. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. 